0: Well, I was thinking this week about uh, almost 12 years ago when Jody and I had our first child, and and I know many of you in the room, not all, many of you are parents, and so you might remember that first child and the pregnancy that precedes the birth of the first child, and I I don't know about for you, for us, it was nerve-wracking. We'd had a miscarriage prior to that, and I just remember there was always this this sense of, you know, is this baby going to make it, and then... The days stretched into months, fortunately, and as the time went on, we, we, we grew more confident that, that, yeah, I think this baby is going to be born. And then as the time got even closer, the, the, the fear sort of waned out a little bit, and it was sort of replaced with this eagerness, like, man, when is this ever going to come? And I remember in particular in, in Jody's uh, third trimester, just this sense of, I am ready, And then just when she thought she was ready, it just went on and on and on, you know. And then the due date came and the due date passed. Now, fortunately for us, we didn't have to wait long. She was born the day after the due date. But I thought the expectation of the waiting was going to just kill us, right? Well, then the baby's born. And of course, those of you that have experienced this, you know, there's no way to prepare yourself for how it's going to change you. Right? It's different than you imagine, and it doesn't matter how many books. I mean, I remember you know, she had these books lined up on the shelf, What to Expect When You're Expecting, and all these different things, but you can't really know what to expect when you're expecting, because it's going to be different. And the wonderful thing about having a child is, is not only is there a new person in your family, but your own identity is changed. Right? You shift now to the identity of parent. And of course, that's not all you are. You still are the other things as well, your wife or your husband, your brother, your son, your worker, you're all these other things, but you now have this new identity as well, parent. And that begins to change you. It changes the way you spend your money. It changes the way you spend your time. It it changes your priorities, the things you care about, the things that, you know, you might start saying things and doing things that you never dreamed about. I mean, I, I remember before we had a baby, and this is like really personal, intimate, but I had this thing about like, potty words like I just couldn't do potty words that just grossed me out and then you start changing diapers and all of a sudden you're just saying things that you never thought you would say and you take the bad with the good right you take the giggles with the dirty diapers and it all goes together and it all changes you and you come out the other side and you're like wow this is different in some ways it's great in some ways it's terrible (laughs) it's different and I am different when Mark wrote his gospel Part of what he was doing was explaining that because this man came, this God-man Jesus, everything is different. You can't help but be changed when you come into communion with this Jesus. And he should know, right? He had conversations, one-on-one conversations, Mark, John Mark did, with the people that walked with Jesus intimately, right? Peter and others. Jesus changes you. And as I thought about what it was like for me to change as I became a parent to take on that new identity, I thought there's something here that Mark is leading us to in this analogy. In other words, you wait and you wait and you wait and then it comes and it changes you. This is exactly what happened to the Jewish people who had waited for millennia for Messiah to come. And then he comes and then he changes He changes everything. He changes you and me. Everything is different. If you're going to follow Jesus, now I'm talking to us right now, 21st century in this room, if we're going to follow Jesus, there's no part of our lives that's untouched. None. Whatsoever. Now, we live in this curious place called the Bible Belt. And even though our culture is changing and you know, we feel it in different ways, maybe there's a growing tension, there's a growing animosity toward Christians, we still, by and large, in Franklin, Brentwood, Spring Hill, Nashville area, Tennessee, we're still fairly insulated. And it becomes this idea where it's fairly normal still to be a Christian. Yet I think the danger in that, honestly the danger for me, is that I would simply just take this Jesus part of my life and fit it in with all the other part of my life. And think, well yeah, I'm, I'm really about the picket fence dream And to the extent that Jesus fits into that picket fence dream, he's welcome. The problem is following Jesus doesn't actually allow space for that kind of convenience. And so Lloyd, who introduced this series last week, and, and today's message is kind of like part two of the introduction, Lloyd reminded us that as we study this man Jesus and as we you know sort of figuratively walk with him over the three and a half years of his ministry, we can't help but be surprised, and we can't help but be changed. And so this morning, as we're in Mark one verses nine through fifteen. I didn't go invite you to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. What we're gonna see is Jesus comes on the scene with a bang. And because of his identity and because of his incarnation and because of his invitation, We are changed. And so that's sort of the outline of the message this morning. We'll look at Jesus' identity, his incarnation, and his invitation. And really what Mark is doing in this passage, he's answering the question, what's so life-changing about this Jesus? What's so life-changing about his arrival on the scene? And we'll see it's because of who he is, his identity. It's because of his incarnation, that God-manned, miraculous combination. And finally, it's because of his invitation for us. Let's look first at his identity. I want to reread the first three verses of this passage, and Tim already read them. We'll read them again. So let's look at 9 through 11 of Mark 1. In those days, and these are the days of John the Baptist, right? We just heard about uh, John baptizing people. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Galilee was up north, and he came down south and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now, verse 9 kind of uh, provides the bridge, between John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, John's baptism, as Lloyd mentioned last week, was not Christian baptism as we think of it today. John's baptism, and we know this if you you jump back with your eyes up to verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jesus comes and he has nothing to repent of right? Jesus is the God-man, as we're going to see in a moment. Jesus is God's Son, as we just saw, you know, the, the declaration of the Father, kind of proclaiming, you are my beloved Son. What did Jesus have to repent of? He didn't come to repent. Jesus came not for repentance. Jesus came for identification, Jesus is here identified as God the Father, by God the Father, rather. He's identified as the Son. He's identified as the second person of the Trinity. He's identified as this long-awaited Messiah. So Jesus comes to be baptized by John in order to confirm his identity. And I think this would have mostly been for public consumption. We know from the other synoptic gospel accounts that that voice that was heard was audible to others. It wasn't just private prayer language between the Father and the Son. This was an audible voice. The spirit was visible. I think that's what this means by like a dove. We'll talk about that more in a minute. There's actually three supernatural things that happen when Jesus is baptized that confirm his identity as God himself, as the Son of God. The first is the heavens opened. Now, the the verb there for open is a really strong Greek verb. It's the verb schizo. In English, we get the word schism. So if you have this tearing the separation this schism it's serious it's big deal picture almost like an earthquake in the sky where, where the sky splits open then the spirit secondly descends on him quote like a dove now you know there's all kinds of speculation and there's if you look at art it's usually pictured as a literal dove it, it doesn't say a dove descended on him it says the spirit descended on him like a dove. And we don't know exactly what that means, but there was some idea that visibly you could see the Spirit in some kind of visible form, and it sort of landed on Jesus in, in, in a significant, particular way. And it's just described here similar to the landing of a dove. And then thirdly, the Father's voice spoke. And you know, not only did, did the Father speak, and God speaking is always a big deal, but the Father speaks identity. Over his son. You are my beloved son. Now, here's the theological significance of this scene, right? This is one of the most vivid pictures of the Trinity in all of Scripture. So you have the Son, you have the Spirit, and you have the Father speaking. Three together. It's sort of, I think, a look behind the curtain. To sort of see God. In fact, I think that's the significance of the heavens splitting, the heavens opening. It's almost like, you know, the the veil's being torn. The curtain's being torn. You can look back behind the stage to see God who he really is. Father, Son, Spirit, Trinity. Now, the Trinity was only hinted at in the Old Testament. And it's not until Jesus' arrival that we start to fully understand, ah, that's what those obscure references to God in the plural were all about. There's three persons, yet one God. There's a mystery of our Christian faith vividly pictured right here at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, the, the idea with this passage is God is speaking identity to the Son. He is God himself. He's the second person of the Trinity. What's the implication of for us the implication is that if Jesus is God then those who follow him he has every right and authority to redefine our lives so if you look up up there on our little tagline I don't know if you can read it it's a small font it says following the servant king how Jesus life redefines our own And and this is going back to that analogy of becoming a parent. There's some ways that I didn't want to change, right? I kind of liked having my time to myself. And then you become a parent, and and, and something happens. You change. What we're being reminded of here, if the one that we're following, if we're Jesus followers, right, we're Christians, if the one that we're following is God himself, then he has every right and authority to proclaim what is true of us, every right and authority to tell us what we can and can't do, every right and authority to define who we are, every right and authority to dictate to us. He's our creator, ultimately. He's God himself. And so this whole idea of, you know, I, I, I like Jesus as long as I can fit him in my box. I like Jesus as long as he's all about these soft, cuddly, mushy things, but I don't like the King Jesus. I don't like the Lord Jesus. There's no room for that if you understand who he is. You see. And I think this is a message to us. I think this is a message to our culture. We cannot define Jesus. He defines us. And he has right and authority to do that because he is God. Now, number one, his identity. Number two, let's look at his incarnation in verses 12 and 13. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, you, you may be asking, what does this have to do with the incarnation? Didn't the incarnation happen at, at the birth of Jesus? Well, yes, it does. But interestingly, Mark doesn't cover the birth of Jesus. Did you notice that? We meet Jesus just as a fully grown man. So he would have been 30 years old when Mark introduces him to us. What Mark is reminding the readers in this temptation narrative, he doesn't spend a lot of time there, but he's reminding them, is not only was Jesus fully God, i.e. part of that triune God, that trinity that you just saw at the baptism, but he's also man. He's also human. He goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted. He goes out in the wilderness and he fasts, right? He's Hungry. And I can't help but, but sort of be amazed that right after this incredible, beautiful moment of the Son hearing the affirmation of the Father and the Spirit just sort of beautifully landing on him, he's led where? Into the wilderness. Are you kidding me? It's like the wilderness. Now, in the ancient mindset, the wilderness represented The domain of evil. The the wilderness was certain death for human beings. The wilderness represented where there is no life, there can be no sustenance, right? There's not food out there, there's not water out there. So let's talk a little bit about the wilderness. In fact, I have a picture to show you of this. When we were in Israel in the spring, we drove down to the Judean wilderness. Now, this is an area that's fairly close to Jericho, and this is our best guess of the part of Israel where Jesus would have been in when he was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Now, you go out here, and of course, we rode in this air-conditioned, cushy bus, and you know, we get off, we're only gonna be outside of the bus for like 30 minutes, and we're all like, do you have a water bottle? You know, I mean, you need two water bottles. Make sure you have your power bar as well. We're in the wilderness, right? And we're, we're just like 100 100- yards from our bus you know you can but you can just sense there's nothing out here except the lizards i mean there's no water there's no source of food in fact mark doesn't even mention that jesus fasted probably because it would have been apparent you don't go out into the wilderness for 40 days and not be fasting Right, So we learn from other gospel accounts, Jesus was hungry, the tempter comes to him, and, and what does he tempt him to do? Turn stones into bread. In other words, go outside of God's provision for you. Surely God doesn't want you to be hungry. If you are his beloved son, as you just heard, then just at one command, you can meet your own needs. You see, Jesus was being tempted to sort of step outside of the human part of his incarnation. So yes, he is fully God. Yes, he could have turned stones into bread, but he's also fully man and he lives into his humanity. You see, he experiences hunger. He experiences temptation. He experiences suffering. Now, what's the implication for us of this? If God is not only fully God, so he has authority over our lives, but he's also fully man, the implication is he knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to be weak, to be frail, to be needy. He understands. He cares. I love this passage from Hebrews 4 15, 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, did you hear where the the writer of Hebrews goes there? He doesn't say, so Jesus faced temptation and didn't sin. So what's wrong with you? Get your act together. He doesn't say that. He says, Jesus faced temptation and didn't sin. Therefore, he understands, he knows, and you can approach him in your time of need. With your brokenness, your failing, your neediness, you can come near because he's not only fully God, he is fully man as well. Last little note about these couple of verses back in Mark. Um, interesting that the wild beasts were mentioned. Did anybody pick up on that? Like, this is the only gospel account that, you know, that talks about the wild beasts being in the wilderness with Jesus. And, and I've been thinking this week, why does Mark mention the wild beasts? Now, we don't know. He doesn't tell us. You can read all kinds of speculation in the commentaries. You know, something, well, you know, it goes back to Adam, and, you know, Adam, you know, the Adam's with the beasts. and now the second Adam's with the beasts. I, I didn't buy that. I'll, I'll tell you the closest that I got to what made sense to me. Lloyd mentioned last week, Mark was writing during the time of Nero. Nero was taking these Christians, he was lighting them on fire, and he was, what else was he doing with them? He was throwing them to the wild beasts. Right, I think this may have been a gentle, subtle reminder to the early Christians when this was written, hey, listen, there was someone else too that was with the wild beasts, right? He will be there with you when you get thrown to these beasts, you see? He knows what it's like. Jesus, fully God and fully Human. Finally, thirdly, his invitation. So we we, we talked about this idea that his identity is God. We talked about he's not only God, but he's also human, you know, the incarnation. And now let's talk about his invitation in verses 14 and 15. Now, after John, John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. So he goes back up north into Galilee. And this time he's there to begin preaching the gospel of God. Verse 15, saying, the time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want to spend the rest of the time we have here together on these verses because they're so alive. They have such meaning for us. Today this idea of repenting and believing in the gospel, this proclamation that the time is fulfilled that the waiting is finished like it's like the end of, you know you know the, the labor has occurred and the time is fulfilled for something new to begin, this birth to happen, the waiting period is over. Let's break down the words. The phrase is one by one as we look at these two verses. So let's we'll start with this phrase, the time is fulfilled. These are the very first words out of Jesus' mouth as recorded by Mark. All right, don't let that pass by you too quickly. You know, Mark, Mark is saying, pay attention. The first words that he's going to attribute out of Jesus' mouth, the time is fulfilled. Now, in order to feel the weight of that phrase, you have to put it in the context of both Jewish history and what I call cosmic history. So let me explain what I mean. Let's talk, first of all, the context of Jewish history. The Jewish people were a people group that, that in their entire history had only had roughly about 80 years of peace and prosperity. So about 40 years under the reign of David and about 40 years under the reign of Solomon. Right, That was it. That was it for them. Those were the, the golden era, the time they look back to. Right, And then since then, it was oppression. It was division. It was taken as slaves. It was almost wiped out on more than one occasion. You know, we we talked about that with, with the Esther story was one of those occasions where they're almost wiped out. Their homes and their communities had been taken from them or burnt to dust. By all practical standards, they shouldn't even have survived as a people group. But here they still were waiting, waiting for a promise to come true. Jesus is saying, The time is fulfilled. The promised one. The king who will restore that throne of David. Who will restore the land. Who will restore the kingdom. The time is fulfilled. We'll talk more about what that means and what it means for us in a few minutes. That's the context of Jewish history, right? The time is fulfilled. Now what about the context of cosmic history? Well, Think about creation. We've talked about this a number of times here if you've been with us the the, the last couple of years. In creation, all things were made right. All things were made knit together. All things were made in peace and harmony, in shalom. But it doesn't take very long. In fact, two chapters later, Genesis chapter 3, everything is torn. Everything is ripped. Creation is marred. Creation is disfigured. And and we know that ever since then, and Paul talks about this too, ever since Genesis 3, the creation has been groaning. So think about labor pains, right? It's groaning, it's painful. Things are just not right. They're not at peace. There's this anticipation, but it's a painful anticipation. Every death that happened from Adam and Eve all the way up to the time of Jesus was a death that said, This is how life ends. And as far as we know, other than a glimmer of a hope, we don't know any different. You see, death was the victor, death was inevitable. There was nothing else to look to except for death. It was just death, and then another death, and then another death, and then another death. And Jesus comes, he says, The time is fulfilled. In other words, something new is going to happen. I'm going to take this pattern of death, 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 death under the curse and I'm going to begin to overturn it, you see. I'm going to begin to turn it around. There's going to be something new. It won't just be death, death, death. death. It's going to be death, 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 death. Life. And he's anticipating something here that will only be fully realized at the resurrection. And for us, will only be fully realized at our resurrection. But because he's here, because he's arrived in a sense, there's something new. There's something breaking through. There's a pattern that's changing, you see. That's the context of cosmic history. So both from the context of Jewish history and cosmic history, Jesus says the time is fulfilled. Well, the time is fulfilled For what? The kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. Now, we've got to talk about kingdom. And, you know, we could preach five sermons on kingdom and not do it justice. I only have about two or three minutes, but here's what I want to say about kingdom. Just like I think there's two contexts for the time is fulfilled. There's a Jewish context and then there's sort of a broader cosmic context. The same is true with kingdom of God. There was a very clear Jewish context. The kingdom that was anticipated, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, you see it used different ways throughout the scriptures, was a literal and is, will be a literal Kingdom where King Jesus will rule on a literal throne and and, and he will be in charge and his domain will not end. So literal kingdom, think that way. Jesus is saying something is starting. Now we're looking around and say, well, where's the kingdom? This is this tension that we live in, right? A lot of the fulfillment of the kingdom is still yet to come in the future, yet there's also some present idea of the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. How could the kingdom be at hand? I I don't see this kingdom yet, literally, right? I don't see Jesus on a throne, right? I don't see all these exact prophecies being fulfilled yet. What Jesus is saying is, because the king has arrived, the kingdom is starting to break through. It's beginning to happen. You have to wait for its fulfillment. But there is a beginning. You see, the kingdom is at hand because the king is on the scene. Think of it this way. World War II. Right? When the Allies landed at Normandy Beach, a beachhead was established. The war was not over, but that beachhead allowed for the reign or the rule of that invading force to eventually flood throughout Europe and liberate where the Nazis had been oppressing. Do you see? Jesus is saying the same thing, right? The kingdom is at hand. I have arrived. The war is not yet done, but the good news, the gospel, will be advancing. So that's from a Jewish context. Now, from a cosmic or, or sort of a broader context, this idea of kingdom is an opportunity for us to live under the reign of God. In other words, our controlling forces now for us anymore doesn't have to be our own selfishness, our own sin, and ultimately death. There's something new that we're being invited into. I think there's a door that's being opened I would almost uh, invite you to to think of of the wardrobe in Narnia, right? There's an entrance into another realm where God is on the throne, and that can be true for you, not just in the future, although that's certainly true, but that rulership, that reign, that kingdom of God can be present in you, for you, in us, beginning now. Dallas Willard calls it, the eternal kind of life. You see, it's it's an eternal life that begins even before eternal life begins. It's the eternal kind of life. It's living in this kingdom. Because he has the king, because he is the king, because he has arrived, the kingdom is at hand. Now, two things. What do we do in response to this invitation? Well, repent and believe in the gospel. So let's talk about those two things briefly. When you hear repent, you immediately think about, man, I got to get my life in order. I got to start being good. I got to start getting religious. You know, this is how our culture thinks about repentance. That's not what it means in this context. Repent, this idea in Greek means to change your mind. Now, I'm somewhat familiar with this because I have three daughters in my house, and they're always wanting one thing. And then right when I'm about to say yes to that one thing, they want something different. I say, what happened? And they say, I changed my mind, right? They repented, you see. That's what this idea is. You change your mind. Now, what are we to change your mind about? I don't think you can separate repent from The phrase that comes after it, believe in the gospel. So we change our mind. We'll come back to that in a minute. What do we change our mind about? We change our mind and we believe in something new. We let go of this. We grab on to that. Repent, believe in the gospel. Let's talk about gospel. Then we'll come back briefly to repent. Now, gospel, as you know, simply means good news. I want you, for the purposes of where we are in Mark right now, in Mark chapter 1, I want you to separate, if you can, the whole idea of substitutionary atonement with the idea of gospel. Because at this point in the narrative... Jesus is not talking about believe in my substitutionary atonement and my resurrection, my death. And re-. He hasn't gotten there yet. There is a good news that simply exists around the fact that the King has come. Therefore the kingdom is at hand. So when Jesus says, believe in the good news, it goes back to the previous idea that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Therefore change your mind and believe this news, believe the good news. That's the message here. Now, in all the rest of Jesus teaching and in all of his miracles he's simply going to be unpacking this core central theme repent and believe the good news that's the message of Jesus entire ministry so think about it he teaches so let's let's take sermon on the mount for example He's saying, blessed are the poor. You hear the good news in that? He's of saying, according to kingdom economy, those of you who have not had it well on this earth, you are the blessed ones. You are the happy ones because I can't wait to show you what's in store for you. And even now, poor ones, you can begin to have a joy of how the Father is sustaining you in this rulership, this reign of God that you can even step into in a beginning way even now. You start to see this. He says, so change your mind about how your life is if you're poor. Believe in the good news. You are blessed. You are happy. You see, think about his miracles. Every miracle that Jesus did, he opened someone's eyes. He calmed the storm. He healed someone. He cast a demon out. What he's saying is, I am showing you a glimpse into the kingdom that is on its way. Because this is a kingdom where there will be no blind people and there will be no sick people. And there will be no death, you see. And I'm making an image of that appear to you here so that you can see, so you can change your mind about life and you can believe the good news of what is on its way and if through belief you can even begin to experience it, to taste it, even this side of your own death, you see. Repent, change your mind, and believe the good news. That's the core message, the core theme of Jesus. We're going to see that lived out all throughout this Gospel of Mark. Now, what's the implication for us? If the kingdom is at hand, then here's what this means new life is available. New life. A different way of relating to God is available. A different way of relating to other people is available. Meaning, purpose, transformation, freedom, fulfillment. Life that is true life is available. The kingdom is at hand. Now, it's a long arrival. Doesn't mean you won't suffer here. In fact, Lloyd did a tremendous job last week. If, if you missed his message, go go back online and listen to it. And he ended with these two lists, right? And one list was the kind of life that we all want—you know, success and joy and everything. You know, it's good. The the other list was was. Loneliness and and suffering and pain. And I was sitting in my seat and I was looking at that list and I was like, I so want the list on the left, but then I realized Jesus lived out the list on the right. And so somehow these two lists come together in the life of Jesus, you see. He's modeling for us what it means to live humbly, to live small, to live as a servant, to embrace suffering so that... All that stuff on the other half of the list will be fulfilled, will be lived out. And I don't think you have to wait totally until heaven to begin to experience it. I think some of that begins to happen now. Again, it's an eternal kind of life that is opening up to us through this invitation of Jesus. So what's our so what? Repent and believe the good news. Now, I want to go back to repentance. As we study this Gospel of Mark, there's going to be all kinds of things that Jesus is going to talk about that we need to repent about. And remember what I mean by that, change our mind about. So let me give you some examples. We need to change our minds about how righteous we are on our own even at our best, right? Even when we're living out this Christian and we're having quiet times and we're going to church and we're giving 10%, we're just, man, I'm just nailing life. We need to change our minds about how righteous we actually are. Number one. Number two, we need to change our minds about what sin actually is and how it affects us. Number three, we need to change our minds about money and possessions. Number four, we need to change our mind about relationships Number five, we need to change our mind about what the good life actually is. Number six, we need to change our mind about what the, the, the people that we tend to look down on. Number seven, we need to change our mind about what suffering really is for. And finally, and there's many others as well, we need to change our mind what it means to engage the world. Now, Jesus is going to address every single one of those things. And if we have ears to hear, I think he's going to push against our assumptions. Even our assumptions as good Christians here in the buckle of the Bible belt, I think he's going to push against some things that we've been assuming. I think we're going to be surprised. I think it could be uncomfortable at times. I think it won't be that different from when you have a new kid and you're like, man, I like this and this and this, but I wish there were no dirty diapers. (laughs) I wish I didn't have to wake up at four in the morning. I wish I didn't have to break my routine and give bath time, you see. But you take the hard with the easy and you're changed by it. And this is my prayer for us as we enter into this gospel of Mark. But not only are we invited to change our minds about some things, we're invited to believe something new. Believe in the gospel. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's not new to me. I, I, I've been believing in the gospel for, well, for me, it was since I was four. You know, my own little four-year-old way. I, I kind of, you know, and, but, but here's the thing about the gospel the, the the more you hear it the more you see it the more you understand it the more you look at the life of jesus the more it just sort of digs down into your heart and does a work down deep right it's like a seed right this should start sounding like some metaphors that jesus used right the kingdom of god right it's it's, it's like it's like a little bit of yeast right? Or it's like a seed, right? It goes down in the earth and then something starts to happen and something beautiful begins to form. So don't say, I got the gospel. I can move on from the gospel. There's a sense that we never do. There's a sense that we never move on. Now, some of you, you'll come to understand and believe the gospel for the very first time, actually, truly during this series. I believe that to be true. It I gives me joy just to say that. I, I've been praying for those of you that will believe the gospel for the first time. In other words, here's what, here's what you need to change your mind on. Being right before God has nothing to do what you do. It has nothing to do with, with how good you are, how bad you've been in the past, how spiritual, you know, like religious you are, how often you come to church, you know. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with you putting your trust, putting your faith in the one that did all that stuff for you, you see. That's the gospel. And some of you, when I, when I talk to people in all kinds of contexts, I, I often hear, you know, how long have you been a Christian? Well, I've always been a Christian. Right? I grew up as a Christian. I understand what you mean when you say that, but I don't think you actually understand fully the gospel because the gospel says you were born in death. You were born separated from God. And at some point in time, you come to understand the free gift that is yours and you say yes to it. Right? Some of you are going to say yes to it during this series. Praise God for that. Others of you will come to see that believing in the gospel is more broad, more comprehensive than just your initial salvation. The way of Jesus is far more exhilarating, interesting, transformative, yet disruptive and uncomfortable than we tend to think it is. And our study of Mark is a big opportunity for us to learn what it means to align ourselves with a new reality, a new kingdom, the door that has been opened. I want to close our service this morning by jumping ahead in the story. And part of the, the danger of, of growing up in the church, like many of you have, is you just know the story so well. You know, yeah, Jesus comes, he's baptized, he teaches, does a bunch of miracles, he dies on the cross, he raises from the dead, then we can all go to heaven, yay, right? That's the gospel, that's Martin. Here's what I want to do. I want to fast forward to the end of Jesus' ministry. This is how I want us to close. We we looked this morning at the beginning of his ministry, and and I want to give a look ahead. You know what we're going to be looking forward to at the end of his message. There's a sense that from the moment Jesus uttered the words, repent and believe in the gospel, he had in mind all that it was going to cost him. You know, he he had in mind this idea that that he is access point, he is the way into this kingdom, but being the access point, being the door, being the, the gate to the kingdom was going to cost him everything. I think he had that in mind. What we will see throughout this journey of the gospel of Mark is not only did Jesus begin the work the Father sent him to do, he finished it. He finished it. And, and we've been talking, I've been talking this morning about the glorious beginning of Jesus' ministry, and, and we thought it would be a, a beautiful Uh, a picture of where we're going to end our service singing about the glorious ending of his ministry. Because as we know, he did lay down his life for us, but he didn't stay in the grave. And because he didn't stay in the grave, his words of invitation, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, were backed up. You see, it actually happened. He did change the pattern He did make all things new. He did create a new door where we can step through the wardrobe and say, no, there's something that lives on the other side. It's life that is true life. And I can look to someone who paved the way for me and will not leave me behind when I go to my own deathbed. You see, that's the gospel. So we'll sing about that as we close our service. Father, we thank you for the beginning of this story of your son Jesus and his ministry and recognizing that it, it, it was only a beginning in the sense that we as a human race got to see with human eyes the coming of the arrival but all along it had been happening Jesus you are pre-existent you always had in mind that you would be the way for us But when you showed up and began to teach it it put it in a visible and audible form that we can respond to in a way that gives us life. And so, Father, I pray for those of us in this room that need to say yes to this invitation, some for the very first time. God, I pray that you'd break down whatever barriers are in their heart, just resistance to change, uh, conceptions of God that need to fall away as they change their minds and believe. I pray for those, God, who are on this journey of transformation through the gospel that years ago, maybe some days or months ago, but for many years ago, said yes to the invitation of life, that understood the substitutionary death and resurrection of your son Jesus. And now, Father, you're inviting us collectively to enter into it in a new and fresh way, to sort of see Jesus with new eyes so that the transformation in us can be accelerated. And I pray that that would be true as we study this gospel. And finally, Father, we thank you for what we're about to sing. And we sing these words, believing that they are true and believing that they make all the difference. In the name of Jesus.